Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC, and each Monday morning we join the Liquid Markets Group market meeting to get the latest update across all traded markets. Good morning. It's Monday the 7th of September, and we're facing a three-day week in America where a muted U.S. shares performance has put the global market in a bit of a downer. And this has also followed news of a Nasdaq whale in the form of a single bet on Silicon Valley through Japan's SoftBank Group. Let's start, however, with Stuart Simmons, our Head of Currency at QIC, Stuart, with macro trends being a primary driver, you've been researching the correlation between risky assets. What warning signs have you uncovered? Yeah, thanks, Craig. You know, after many weeks of discussing how familiar the price action has been, we finally saw something that was unfamiliar. As you mentioned, a healthy correction. Given we had just about run out of superlatives to describe the move in certain parts of the market, this correction did have a sense of inevitability about it. It was really just a matter of timing. There was no shortage of warning signs, some of which had been with us for a while. You know, we've been highlighting for some time now the extremes in market polarization, which has resulted in a massive performance differential between different segments of the market. And in fact, for only the first time since September 2000, the 20-day correlation between S&P 500's growth and value indices was actually in negative territory. More recently, the team have also highlighted the unusual occurrence of rising VIX alongside rising stocks. Uh, The breakdown in some of those cross-asset correlations, that co-movement that we've been referring to quite regularly, and also the poor price action of those market darlings, Apple and Tesla, just ahead of Thursday's correction. But in the end, it wasn't anything fundamental that put a halt on the extraordinary run. Uh, There was no collapse in the economic data, no additional COVID outbreak or vaccine setback, no further deterioration in the fragile US-China relationship, and no change to the status quo on US election uncertainty. And there certainly wasn't a turn in central bank accommodation. This is really a flow-driven move, which finally ran out of steam with the reversal concentrated in those assets, which have really benefited most. The inflection point in momentum also represented an inflection point in option hedging. And the corrective move lower was certainly exacerbated by the non-linearity of those option positions. That flow-driven nature and sense of inevitability has meant there's no broader panic across other asset classes with moves in credit, bonds, commodities, and exchange rates really quite orderly. And this highlights that the nature of the correction has few medium to long-term implications for medium to long-term investors, apart from perhaps a greater appreciation of the impact from the speculative class of investors, both institutional and retail. Stu, let's get into those currency markets as well. So what were the implications that you're seeing for currency markets going forward? Yeah, on exchange rates, we've seen um, evidence of growing sensitivity to the level of the euro over the past week. This set up for an interesting ECB meeting on Thursday. After senior ECB executive board member Isabel Schnabel expressed little concern for the euro level the prior week, uh, Chief Economist Philip Lane weighed in to say that the exchange rate does matter. So having touched 120 on the euro dollar exchange rate, it was enough to introduce more uncertainty in the euro, along with growing evidence of that divergence in growth momentum from that European COVID second wave. Uh, We had that follow-up piece from the Financial Times adding to the noise, 
albeit with some fairly innocuous comments from ECB members who aren't too uncomfortable with current levels and would really be more concerned about that trajectory higher. Closer to home, we've seen the, the Aussie dollar also consolidate lower with those twin influences of a stronger US dollar and also the correction in stocks. Stu, I want to take you back just to Europe because you mentioned the euro before and Paul Nicholson's going to update us as well on the ECB's upcoming meeting next week. Uh, but as we lead into this meeting, what's your take on ECB sensitivity to that level of the euro? Probably think it's overdone, Craig, uh, in terms of the market really creating a story where there may not be one. Part of the ECB's recent communications has been really an acknowledgement that the euro is higher through a number of forces which are actually quite intuitive. Uh, firstly, there's the, the underperformance of the US dollar more broadly across uh, almost all currencies, but also the improvement in that long run uh, European outlook that's taken place really with the fundamental underpinning of that recovery fund. So, you know, my main point here would be that the ECB acknowledge the reasons for why the euro is where it is. They're probably just going to be more sensitive to a straight line higher rather than being too concerned about current levels. Thanks, Stuart, and thank you very much for that currency update. I'm going to introduce Robert Swan into the conversation. Robert, you are head of risk premium equities, and we're also going to be looking at how we're going to cover off on commodities and market themes are emerging at the moment through the equity markets. But can we start locally? We saw the Aussie share market have its best August since 2009. How have the equity markets locally and globally continued this trend going forward this week? Thanks, Greg. Um, I guess the start of uh, September hasn't been that great for stocks. Uh, the NASDAQ has led global equities down. Uh, it's off about 3% on the week. The Australian market has performed slightly better, only falling 2%, but still behind the European market, which has actually only fallen by 1% on the week. And did volatility markets react accordingly as well, Robert? Yes, Craig. Uh, volatility actually started the week at around about 22 volatility points, which is really uh, at the lows of what we've seen in the post-COVID world. Uh, with Thursday and Friday's uh, equity sell-off, it exploded higher. Uh, seeing an intraday high of 38 before settling in at around about 30 at the end of the week. Now, Rob, we've been talking about the power of the fangs lately, but on Thursday, and as I mentioned in my introduction, tech saw a bit of a correction. There is now talk of a NASDAQ whale driving this. Can that one investor be responsible for all this market movement? Well, I think with enough leverage, one investor certainly can move the markets, especially if there isn't a lot of uh, volume or liquidity uh, in terms of people taking the opposite side. I think the most interesting thing here is the interaction between uh, call buyers and what's happening in the underlying markets. So from a dealer's perspective, whenever people are buying options, they end up being short. And those dealers typically don't want to take outright directional exposure. So in order to hedge that, they will typically, if markets are going up, then they'll be buying equities. And whereas if markets are selling, they'll typically be selling it equities, which really exacerbates market movements in both directions, which is what we've really been seeing over the last couple of months. Robert, can we also switch to commodities, please? We've just seen that equities correction you mentioned, but did gold provide the hedge that maybe some investors were looking for? Well, I think most people that are buying gold are buying gold to, perfect, uh, to protect against inflation. Now, gold and silver have both typically had a positive equity beta. And so really, what we saw last week was those uh, two commodities selling off 
in line with what their equity beta would suggest. I think what's interesting too is that WTI, which has been on a sort of positive run for probably the last three months, actually sold off over the week by about 8%, giving up pretty much the last two months worth of performance. There you go. Thank you very much, Robert, our head of Pris Premium Equities. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Market Moments podcast. Let's get into uh, global policy, inflation, bonds, and of course, fixed income. Beverly Morris, you are QIC's Director of Fixed Income and Absolute Return. We just heard from Stu about the correlation theme within markets. And after a sustained period of correlation, is there any evidence this uh, correlation between rates and equities is starting to decay? Good morning, Craig. Um, look, it was a bit of an interesting week uh, last week in that particular regard um, and equity and bond correlations really were flipped on their head last week and it, and it began early in the week where we had uh, a, a bit of a curious bull flattening um, and bond market rally that took place very early in the week uh, alongside you know quite still strong uh, equity performance so US 10-year break-evens were down around seven basis points over the week which is quite a large move um, for that particular market but it does come up after a very, very strong run. And I think um, a bit of healthy consolidation, um, which we've you know, spoken about in equities and some other markets, looks to have taken place last week in some fixed income markets as well. And, and that's a very um, you know, healthy thing for markets after you know, very strong runs that they, they take a bit of a, a breather. And, and certainly that's what, what, what we'd be putting it down to last week as well. Um, and so that breakdown in correlation um, then um, just basically changed direction at the end of last week, where on Friday night we saw a very uh, sharp re-steepening of global yield curves, um, a big sell-off in global rates. Uh, in fact, the US 10-year was up 11 basis points. So very, very big day. Again, set aside um, the equity market moves that we've just been speaking to. So yes, yeah, some interesting um, cross-correlation activity last week. Too much, you know, obviously to read into it with, with one week of price action. But yeah, it was a bit definitely noteworthy last week. Bev, you mentioned uh, inflation before. Last week, we saw inflation markets become the latest target of US hedge funds with David Einhorn's Greenlight Capital announcing they are positioning for uh, an inflation rise. Uh, Was this the trigger, uh, tongue-in-cheek here, for an inflation correction? What's your latest take on inflation, please? Um, everyone's getting on the inflation bandwagon. Um, as you know, we've we've been on this theme for for about six months now. So you know, it's very um, interesting and 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 quite you know a positive development. We think that there's there's so much market chatter about the moves in this market, um, and that you know there's a lot of people now you know putting out new re- new trade recommendations to to be um, getting long inflation here. Um, look. Typically, when when big um, hedge fund managers put out pieces like that, you know they've obviously been invested for a little while. Um, look, profit taking is not a bad thing. Um, this has been a you know a, a pretty much a straight line upward move for six months in this market. Um, USBEIs are up over 100 basis points from the lows, so it's been an extraordinary move. Um, and I think you know what we've seen is a bit of profit taking and a bit of consolidation. And you know we're still pretty positive. You know, medium term, nothing's really changed for us. Excellent, Beverly Morris. Thank you very much for that rates and inflation update. Paul Nicholson, Director for Global Absolute Return and Income Funds. Can we please bring you into the conversation to discuss those European and emerging markets? Brexit is heating up again with headlines this week suggesting a day of reckoning with Boris Johnson saying the UK might quit talks if no deal is struck by October. So, Paul, where are the talks falling down, please? Thanks, Craig. Um, Yes, Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving, whether you 
whether you asked for it or not, I'm afraid. And uh, to, as of tonight, um, the, the we've actually got another spanner in the works uh, that's that's quite a hot off the press. But really, the, the conversation has been surrounded fisheries and the uh, the uh, ability to be independent going forward. Uh, and really, the, the main issues between Barnier and the UK government have been these red lines that the UK has set out. Now, they've found a way to work with each other before tonight. Um, but generally, given the furlough ends in, in October, the tax situation may have to increase there. And then we've got this looming Brexit deadlines. The outlook for the UK looks looks rather bleak. And, and then tonight, they've actually just announced out of Whitehall that they're going to in, introduce the UK Internal Market Bill. That's going to come this Wednesday. If in its current form, it's going to be quite uh, quite challenging, actually, for the Europe to 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 stomach because it would be a direct uh, dare I say it, breach of international treaty which was the withdrawal agreement that Boris just signed last October um, so that would very much uh, uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons whenever Tony Abbott's going to take up his new role as advisor to the UK Board of Trade particularly when um, they're going to be quite um, uh, confrontational about this negotiation. Now, everything is aimed towards the 15th, 16th of October. That's the uh, next European Council meeting. Uh, we would like to see an agreement before then, uh, because obviously then it needs to get ratified before Christmas and New Year, which is the deadline. But essentially, we, we, this is going to rumble all, Craig. You know, there, there's no real easy solution here. It's going to be very challenging. Um, to give you an example, uh, the trade Minister of the European Commission recently lost his seat and uh, lost his position due to controversies. And um, so they're only really getting a new person going to be appointed. Um, so largely the Brexit saga is going to continue to rumble on and they will miss these. I'll avoid any poor puns around it being fishy, Paul, but how have the markets uh, reacted? Have they favoured one side over another in their reaction? It's very, it's very sanguine at the moment. Uh, I think we're, you know, we have had quite a, a drawn out four and a half years of this Brexit saga. So I don't think anybody's going to run one way or the other too aggressively. But certainly the, the UK would look a little bit bleaker if this does descend into another farce. Uh, I, I think that would definitely be the case um, with, the, with the Europe probably coming out as stronger here on that side. Well, let's stay with Europe because we mentioned earlier the ECB meets again next Thursday. The market um, is expecting an uneventful meeting. Paul, are you positioning your European trades accordingly? Yeah, the, so there's been a bit of jawboning, uh, like Stu mentioned, from Philip Lane. I tend to agree with Stu on this, that the euro is is what it is, and I don't think the Europeans have ever really shown any great um, uh, ability to, to to want to move it uh, too aggressively. It, it tends to be hard. It, it tends to be already in the price by the time they look at it. There's about nine basis points of easing priced into the uh, European curve over the next 12 months. The, the data is mixed. You know, we had very poor flash uh, inflation numbers at the start of the week. However, you know, generally the uh, industrial production and et cetera, forward looking data looks quite strong. So as we get this scenario where a lot of that fiscal and monetary stimulus is still being handed out, is still being uh, disseminated. I don't expect them to come up with anything too aggressive. But what will more likely happen is they'll give us an indication 
of whether at the December meeting they're going to increase the uh, pandemic emergency payments of PEPP uh, to March 2021. I think that's very likely. They'll probably increase that program another 400 billion, probably, um, which you know in turn will affect the FX and the rates markets itself. But but generally it'll be a credit story. I think that one. Uh, will continue to be a credit story. So not much expected. It's really just the insight they give us for the forward sort of path towards the end of the year. And and of course with Brexit, they're going to be quite um they're they're going to be uh, waiting and seeing so there will not be very much hawkishness coming up. Thank you, Paul Nicholson, for that update there on the European markets. Welcome to the Market Moments podcast, Stephen Holm. As QIC's global credit income and senior research analyst, can we please cover the China markets? Last week, the Chinese manufacturing PMI recorded its highest level since 2011. Stephen, what are the key takeaways and market implications? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Uh, good morning, everyone. Look, I think there's a couple of the key attractions that China has always had for its role in, in sort of particularly sort of diversified global portfolios are the higher yields that tend to be offered in China and also um, China's role as a diversifier um, because it tends to operate according to its own cycle and, and that's very true at the moment. So, you know, China went into this, uh, as we know, global COVID pandemic early uh, and hard. It had a hard health crisis. It had a major economic slowdown um, and it's now re- recovering from both of those and we're starting to see that evidence in the data as you mentioned you know the Kaishin PMI at 53 was the strongest level since 2013. You know more recent sort of data people are going to the movies again box office um, sales are back to sort of the levels they were last year. Um, new car sales are back to last year levels as well so things are definitely returning to more normal both health-wise and economically in China. And what that's kind of meant from a market point of view, um, particularly for us as bond investors, is we've seen uh, a significant shift in the trend of yields. So, you know, as early as, as recently as May, um, the market was expecting further easing from the People's Bank of China and markets were positioned accordingly. Since then, there's been a significant turnaround. Um, so rates, for example, a five-year government bond yield in China around the end of April was just under 1.8%. It's now sitting at just under 3.1%. So there's been a 135 basis point increase in the five-year government bond yield in China since uh, the beginning of May. Meanwhile, yields in other parts of the world are uh, flat or falling. So that means that the differential between the five-year China bond yield and the five-year US yield is now at 2.75 basis points. So nearly 3%, and that's a multi-year high. What this, of course, means is it's attracting foreign capital flows into China, both equities, but also bonds. So July and August, uh, just last week, August's data was out for foreign purchases of bonds in China at 1.3 billion, um, was the second strongest month of inflows on record. Uh, and the strongest month was actually the previous month, July. So two months consecutively, the two strongest months of, uh, of flows into the China bond markets. Thank you, Stephen Holmes, that update on China. You are listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Market Moments podcast. Welcome Richard Garland, our Senior Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst for Global Credit. Can we please move into the global credit markets? We heard earlier in the podcast there's been an increase in equity volatility. Can you please quickly update us on how those credit markets reacted? 
Yeah, thanks, um, Craig. Good morning, listeners. You know, last week there was little reaction from credit to the increased volatility that we did see in equity markets. And this to us actually makes sense because over the last week or so, you know, credit has not been caught up in the bubblish type behaviour that equities and particularly tech stocks have. So on Thursday, for example, you know, the S&P had its big down day, 3.5% lower. Um, the Nasdaq was down 5%. And we saw credit spreads only one to two basis points wider. And in actual fact, the only primary market deal done in the day that day in the US was four times oversubscribed. So obviously still plenty of demand for credit, even on an equity down day. And Richard, uh, more recently, the RBA has announced an increase in that term funding facility. Has that an impact on the local credit market? Yeah, so last week we actually just talked about the term funding facility on this call. Um, and you recall that's a three-year lending facility RBA offers to all Australian deposit taking institutions, and that's at a rate of 25 bips. The facility was 150 bill in total and offered in two tranches. And on Tuesday, the RBA actually announced an extension and an increase to this facility. So they will offer now a third tranche, which can be drawn down until uh, June 2021. Um, And this tranche will be for another 50 bill or equivalent of around 2% of total ADI credit assets. Um, and this will take the program in total to 200 bill and three instalments. The first 90 bill ends on the 30th September this year, so at the end of this month. Uh, then 60 bill on the 31st of March 2021, and the new 50 bill tranche on the 30th of June 2021. And you know, you you, you asked me about sort of the the effects um, on the economy, and there's you know, effects on the economy, but also the, the market and, and their benefits, really. So for the economy, you know, the RBA is really helping to make sure there's ample and cheap um, credit availability in the economy to fund growth. That your colleague, Richard. Um, I think we'll, I think we've got the update there on the TFF. But we might just quickly switch gears into those credit inflows because flows have actually been higher lately. Um, and I understand all time records in the USIG market. What are the forward looking primary market expectations, Richard? Yeah, so we actually had some record inflows into USIG funds uh, last week, so around 15 billion, beating the previous record of 14.9 billion, um, and that was seen in June this year. And just really shows investors still like the asset class. Um, and then in primary markets, they're due to really hot up this week in the US after a number of quiet weeks. So we're looking to 40 to 50 bill of issuance expected in USIG. Thank you, Richard Garland. Uh, Phil Meyer, we might ask you to uh, wrap it up for us, please. Um, We've also been hearing from you and Pat that the Aussie season has almost come to a close. But with that RBA announcement that uh, Richard has covered off, from a a microcredit point of view, how are you seeing an impact on corporate credit analysis going forward? Thanks, Craig. Uh, Yeah, so the term funding facility is really important, but I think in terms of the bottom-up fundamentals, it's, it's less of an issue it's more around relative value and market pricing even on the even on the micro credit side so in terms of fundamentals for the aussie credit market we know and we've talked a lot about issuers um, and this is consistent with global credit as well but issuers have really been um, reinforcing their balance sheets and and def- i guess making their cash flows more resilient um, that's taking cost out cutting capex cutting dividends and and equity raisings where they're required so the term funding facility is more from I guess direct implications for the Aussie dollar credit market, it's through relative value. So what we've seen and talked about a lot is that major bank funding is really 
um, in the senior unsecured bucket is going to be non-existent for certainly the foreseeable future and over the next 12 months. Thank you, Phil Mile, and of course, the whole Liquid Markets team for today's Market Moments podcast. The actions of SoftBank, of of course, WeWork fame, and the ability to influence the tech stocks was an interesting highlight from this week, but did it overshadow the return of business as usual and record flows returning to our global credit markets? And of course, is there more to come in that unfolding inflation story? I'm Craig Valenzuela. Thank you for listening to us on QPod today and have a super week ahead.